Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Did you enjoy trashing it to her? I did, and I enjoyed hating it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 131. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I got a great email recently from Charity who joined us on episode 85. Every week we get emails that say, oh my gosh, that last episode was my favorite, but we got more than normal on Charity's episode. So here's what she says. I wanted to send you a long overdue thank you for your book recommendations to me on episode 85, which were Madeline Langle's Crosswicks Journals, Danny Shapiro's Hourglass, and David Gooderson's Snow Falling on Cedars. Not only did each one strike the kind of tone that I like in books, but the whole experience of being a guest on and a listener in the What Should I Read Next community has bolstered my reading life. After a very readerly year for me, I've decided to celebrate my 30th birthday with a big bookish bash. Guests are encouraged to bring poems and book recommendations, and I've ordered some of my favorite books to give us prizes, disguised in blind date with a book fashion. In addition to games like Balderdash, I'm intending to incite debate over the best on-paper couples. And because I'm an art teacher on maternity leave, I've also upcycled books into bunting and wreaths. So once again, a big thank you to you and to the What Should I Read Next community. Readers, thank you for being part of that bookish community. And more from Charity, I know you want to hear. I also have to add in a note about two books I remember you mentioning that you hadn't read on past podcast episodes, Les Miserables and The Count of Monte Cristo. I want to urge you to drop everything and read them now. So thanks so much for that, Charity. And readers, you can listen to Charity's episode wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this one, that's episode 85, or right on the site at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 85. Readers, a special summer reading episode is coming your way this month. I'll be talking to bookstore owner and friend Annie Jones about the books we can't wait to read this summer, and we want to hear from you. Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash talk to leave us a brief message about the one book you can't wait to get your hands on this summer, and you may hear your own voice on the show. That's whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash talk, T-A-L-K. 
Readers, Jane Austen devotees will get a big kick out of today's guest. Clara Brighton Moser is originally from New Zealand, currently lives in England, and now spends her days smack in the middle of a favorite literary landmark, which we will talk about today. We also talk heritage preservation, tracking reading with the help of our friends, excellent foodie memoirs, and we also dive into Clara's special request, and I found it to be surprisingly tough. She wants to read more books about characters in their 20s, without romance as the central theme. Readers, this is a fun one. Let's get to it. Clara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today because you have a very interesting background as a reader and as a person in the world. Uh, Yes, I suppose so. I'm from New Zealand originally, but I've been living in the UK for close to two years now, first in London and then now in Bath. I hope you're a Jane Austen fan. You can't not be and live in Bath, I think. That seems reasonable to me. So what brought you halfway around the world? I sort of just finished my undergraduate in New Zealand and wasn't sure what I was going to do next. Um, But I've always had sort of a pull to Europe. My dad is from Switzerland. And so I decided to move to London about six months after I finished my degree. When I first moved over, I spent three weeks traveling around England with my mum and we went to lots of heritage properties and lovely cities, but I just fell in love with Bath instantly. Within 10 minutes, I was proclaiming it as my sole city (laughs) and that I I wanted to live here. I ended up choosing a course, a master's course here in Bath in heritage management. Would you tell me more about that? It's basically a museum studies course, but sort of got a focus on what we understand to be heritage, physical and intangible, and sort of how this changes over time. Is that something you've been interested in for a long time? Or is that something that struck you once you were in England? And I would also love to hear your thoughts. So many avid readers I know dream of going to London and to smaller British cities like Bath and seeing all the sites that they know from literature or that they know because they're associated with their favorite authors. I'm thinking that this must be all swirled together somehow. Yes, definitely. I have to pinch myself constantly that I have both lived in London and in Bath. Things like walking down the Royal Crescent, which is obviously a World Heritage Site, but also, you know, the scenes from Persuasion and being in London. And I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan as well. And the littler villages make me feel like I'm living in an Agatha Christie novel. So I feel like I'm constantly jumping between all my favorite novels. Definitely intensified when I was over here in the UK and sort of been inspired by the properties and the world-class museums here in Europe. And so it was always something that I was interested in, museums and lovely places and travel. But it wasn't until I got to Europe that I sort of even considered that it could be a career for myself. So I'm very excited about it. Since heritage management are not two words I've heard strung together until four minutes ago, could you tell me a little more about what people who pursue your course of study end up doing? What are some of the options for you after you finish your program? There's the curatorial collections work. So that's when you go into a museum, it's all the artifacts and the archives and objects, sort of what you perceive to be um, museum work, I think. Originally, I thought that it was more about working in a museum. You had to be a curator, you had to be creative. And it was only sort of, I've got a background in economics, but it was something that I realized as a planner and an organizer and sort of with the more business side 
that's actually a large part of it too. So museums are basically businesses these days. And so it's about how do you manage them? How do you get the right people? What are all the policies required? The finances, all those different aspects of a business, but just in a museum environment. So that's what I'm interested in, the sort of actual management of the museums rather than the management of the heritage, which might be more your collections, making sure, you know, your National Trust buildings are all standing up for the long term. Do you see yourself going back to New Zealand or are you open to to wherever the path may lead? I do see myself going back to New Zealand. I'm definitely still open. So at this stage, I'd like to stay in the UK for a wee bit longer. I'm open to going anywhere at the end of my course in September, but for the time being, being here in Bath is just a dream and there's no better place to study heritage. I mean, it's a UNESCO World Heritage City, one of only two in the world, the other being Venice. It couldn't get better than this, I think. (laughs) What are some of your must-see literary sites while they're still close? My personal favourite is the Royal Crescent followed by the circus. So there's this great link between, to put it into perspective for your listeners, I think that the Royal Crescent is part of the route that she runs down in Persuasion Mm -hmm. to meet um, Captain Wentworth at the end. And then if you follow that along, there's the Royal Circus and then you head straight into Bath. What got me about Bath is that it's so complete and so everything looks as it would have in Jane Austen's day. So you do just feel like you're walking around in a novel. Actually, Mary Shelley wrote a large part of Frankenstein in Bath, Mm -hmm. but she's very much underrepresented in the town. Jane Austen is obviously the big draw card, but they've just started to talk more about Mary Shelley, and she lodged right in the centre of Bath, you know, the main square. So there's a little plaque now that says, Mary Shelley stayed here and wrote Frankenstein, which I think is, you know, needed because not many people knew about that one. And especially that it's something you're walking by in your daily life. Oh, yes. My walk into town, you pass all the sites on your way in and it's just it. I have to pinch myself all the time. <laughs> okay, Bath may just have moved up a lot of spots on my literary must-see sites. It's definitely worth a visit and it's only an hour and a half from London, so it's very doable in a day and I would happily show you around if you came. I might take you up on that. <laughs> Please do. Okay, Clara, you mentioned you're a planner. You reported that you've been keeping very detailed records of your reading life since 2014. And now that you said that you're a planner and an economist, what you're saying doesn't sound as surprising to me. Could you tell me more about how you've been tracking your reading? Because it's really, uh, it's really unusual. Sure. I love how I track my reading. It's been a great joy for the four years that I've been doing it. So I have a Evernote document and I have a shared document with two other friends and we all keep track of our reading in this document. Put down the book that we've read, the author, and we give it a really simple rating system and we leave it normal if we you know, didn't have any strong feelings about it. We italicized if we enjoyed it and we'd recommend it and we bold it if we loved it. And what I really love about the system is not only can I look at what my friends are reading, but I can also, it's completely personal. 
it's all about how I feel. It's not about the literary standard of the book. So even if a book, you know, is not great literature, I can still bold it and love it, whereas I wouldn't feel comfortable giving it five stars. Mm -hmm. How many friends are you sharing this with? Well, it's grown in the past couple of <laughs> months. So it started with two friends and we've now upped it to four other people. So it's quite quite a lot of good reading stalking, lots of recommendations flying around. How often do you read books because you see them on that Evernote document? My best friend who I share the document with, we have sometimes very similar books and sometimes very dissimilar books that we enjoy. So one of the books that I love, she recommended, and one of the books I hated, she recommended. (laughs) Are we going to talk about those today? We are going to talk about those today. Okay. Okay, good. It's interesting. You do get to understand other people's tastes as well as your own but it has helped me figure out what my tastes are. And at the end of the year, we always work out what were our favorite books and how many female authors did we read, how many nonfiction books did we read and sort of keep tally of that. I've talked to many readers who track their reading in a document like you're talking about, but I haven't talked to anyone who, aside from a social media platform, deliberately tracks their reading in community like that. What first gave you the idea to do that? Sure, entirely. My friend Anna and I, we studied together and we both used Evernote as writing all our notes and things. And that has the shared ability to share documents or share a notebook and then each have individual notes. So it's not all on one document, but they're within one notebook. And it just sort of evolved after we talked about reading a lot, as we do, and been a great source of joy, like I said, especially now because we all live on other sides of the world. My Mm -hmm. friend Anna is in the States, Madeline is in New Zealand, and I'm here in England, but we still can see what each other are reading. Although I do feel um, like the lesser reader sometimes because they both read into the hundreds in their years, and I don't quite reach those (laughs) heights. I always say this to people, I say, oh, Anna's read 100 books this year and I've only read 60 and people are like, what? 60? (laughs) (laughs) But when you're comparing them. Yeah, there are very few people to whom you'd say that you've only read 60 books. I I know. Have to put it in context. So, Clara, it sounds like you've been reading for a very long time. Indeed, yes. Since I had the babysitter's clubs that was stack that was as tall as I was. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear those were popular in New Zealand as well. Well, I could get them in the charity shops for about 10 cents a copy. And so my mum would always let me go crazy. Now, I've heard from our Australian listeners that books there are quite expensive. Is that true in New Zealand as well? It is true in New Zealand. Almost entirely a library reader, still here in the UK now. Um, Being a student, don't have a lot of money to spend on books, unfortunately. But luckily, my library has access to the whole southwest of England to get its books from. So I always have a very long reservations list. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's amazing. I bet you do. Are you still able to read uh, for your personal pleasure while you are pursuing a degree? I am trying really hard to. I definitely did not read as much when I was at university. Mm -hmm. And I can see that because my reading doubled the year after I left my undergraduate degree. But I was reading tons. I read up to two hours a day each day in London on the commute. And so I am trying to keep that momentum going Mm -hmm. now that I'm here in Bath. 
but I'm definitely a supply side reader. So I need <laughs> to have books that I want to read or else I can easily go a month without reading anything, which is terrible. Well, I know what that means. That means if you're <laughs> going to keep reading at the pace you'd like, then you need a long list of good books that you are looking forward to. Indeed, I really do. All right. In that case, are you ready to get into your books? Sure. Okay. Clara, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love. One book you, you already told me you're very comfortable saying that you hated <laughs> that one. Yes, I am. Can't wait to talk about it. And what you're reading now, and we will talk about what you could read next. All right, let's get into your favorites. So my very first book that I love is My Berlin Kitchen by Louisa Weiss sort of a food memoir about the author's life and how she's looking to find where she belongs, I think. And it tells the story between Berlin, where she was born, Italy, where her family's from, America, where her father lived and went to college, and Paris, where she lived for a short period of time. And then she sort of explores the role that food and her cooking blog, The Wednesday Chef, has played on her life. That sounds perfect for you. How did you find that one? Actually, my friend Anna recommended this one to me and she recommended it right as we were both living in London for the summer and then she moved to DC and I moved to Bath. She had just read it and said, I had to read it. I think I had picked it up previously and gotten two pages in and had to return it to the library uh -huh. or something like that. But she recommended it so expressively that I picked it up immediately. And it was just the perfect book to read right at that transition. She is going through a lot of transitions in her life about where she wants to be. And there's this amazing passage I just love where she talks about her feelings leaving New York City and I will never be standing on the street corner as the wind blows and the taxi cab drives by at this very moment. And it was exactly how I felt about London. No one was making me leave, but I was, mm -hmm. you know, every moment I was, oh, my last time getting a coffee at this favorite cafe shop, my last time walking past this statue I love. She calls herself a sentimental sap as well, which is me exactly. <laughs> it's good to find our fellow <laughs> idealist types. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, did you make any of the recipes or are you perfectly happy to read about the food and not actually cook it in this kind of, it's a memoir with recipes punctuating almost every chapter, if I remember right? Yes, there's a recipe at the end of each chapter. I love food memoirs. Largely, I think, because I can't cook, but I can make <laughs> myself So, for example, Ruth Rachel, who I just think is just about my favorite author, I love her books because she writes about food better than I can experience it. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I really love foodie memoirs, but I've never cooked a recipe from one of them. I have sometimes, but I read and enjoyed my Berlin kitchen, but I never cooked a single recipe. I think I remember something about a potato salad that I remember thinking sounded particularly noteworthy, but yeah, I never cooked it. Or my dad being Swiss has the perfect potato salad recipe. Of course recipe he does. Of course he does. <laughs> now, have you visited any of the places she talks about in her book? I have actually. So I've done quite extensive traveling in uh -huh. Europe. I did a big six-week trip with one of my best friends when she moved over to London this time last year, exactly. It's a good time to travel. Yes. And we sort of got everything from high sun to snow, but oh, I managed to go to all those 
so to Berlin and Italy were both on that trip. I'm jealous. I haven't been to Italy. Or I had a near miss with Berlin in uh, 2001, but I've never actually been. So books like that always make me want to travel. Yes, I think they always make one want to travel, especially when you're one of those travelers who you can never get enough than reading the books that are set in those places. You just want to go back. Uh, yes, for sure. And it sounds like you love books that inspire you to do that. Mm-hmm. Clara, what's another of your favorites? Uh, so my next favorite is also actually set in Europe. It's We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter, which mm-hmm. I think is just about one of the most special books I've ever read. So it's a World War II novel and it follows three generations of a Jewish family uh, from Poland over sort of eight years of World War II. And it's incredibly heartbreaking and really not an easy book to read. But it was just so hopeful and so full of sort of the resilience of the human spirit. But what really got me were the characters. I just adored every character from the beginning page and they were so well developed. And I really sort of understood their motivations and determination and how they got through. But it wasn't until the very end in the author's note that I even realized it was a true story based off her family's history. And that just took it over the edge and made it all the more powerful for me. Is that typical of your experience with reading that you really love books where you feel like you can relate to the characters and they really draw you in? And We Were the Lucky Ones features characters that you, as a reader, ardently wish good things for as they're in the midst of really, really difficult situations. Does that capture your reading life? Definitely. I love good characters. My um, favorite book of all time is the Guernsey Literary and Potato Mm. Peel Pie Society. And I just, you know, those characters where you just want them to be your friends. And I felt the same way with We Were the Lucky Ones, even as they were going through something as awful and tragic as World War II, that they really were wonderful characters that I just really rooted for and only wanted good things for. So Guernsey and We Were the Lucky Ones, both historical novels, is that coincidence or is that a genre that you find yourself drifting towards? I suppose that's coincidence. I actually don't tend to like historical World War II novels, but maybe I'll have to rethink that. Okay, I will keep that in mind. Clara, what's another favorite? The Defining Decade, Why Your Twenties Matter and How to Make the Most of Them by Meg Jay. So this is a nonfiction book. The author is a clinical psychologist who specializes in 20-somethings, and she sort of argues against the 30 is the new 20 culture and argues that your 20s are actually the most defining decade of adulthood, which is a message I really like being in my early 20s. And also it's a really conversational tone. It's told through the stories of her clients, which makes it really readable, but also gives really actionable advice. I'd love to hear why, as a 22-year-old, her assertion that 30 is not the new 20, why that really matters to you. My friends and I are always joking that sort of your 20s are an identity crisis. The whole <laughs> that everyone's trying to work out who they are and what they're doing while also trying to fit in traveling and dating and studying and working out sort of the life they want to lead. I'm Very much like that, as Anna and I joke that we are very interested in our own emotional experiences. But I've always been 
really mature for my age. I moved to London when I was 20, a week before my 21st birthday. So this idea that your 20s are the time to figure out who you are and what you're doing and fit that all in really appeals to me and is something that I really like the sound of and think is really useful advice. She really talks through, you know, why you can't muck around in your 20s. And (laughs) as anyone who knows me knows, I do not muck around. I am an ENFJ and at its extreme, I am a cult leader. (laughs) Oprah is an ENFJ. Always have that sort of bossy, driven nature, I suppose. And sometimes you use it to tell everybody what to read, right? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay. So I know it's been a long time since I read this book, which I really enjoyed because it was two houses ago. I can picture which library I picked it up from and where it was sitting on the couch. But I do remember her saying that, first of all, 10 years is a really uncomfortably long time to have a nonstop identity crisis. And she was really pushing back against the idea that your 20s don't matter, that nothing serious happens in your 20s. So you can do whatever you want and make up for it when you turn 30. Is that right? Am I remembering that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, she definitely argues against that culture and that sort of misinformation, she calls it, and that people feel like they can not do anything of significance because their 20s don't matter and that's an emotional adolescence. But actually, I've found the complete opposite. All the people that I know are sort of overwhelmed by how much they have to fit into their 20s. The idea that that's the time that you have to do all these things get a degree, travel, start a family, all those things within your 20s. And that that's 10 years is quite a daunting amount of time to do that in. But what I really like about this book is that it is really actionable and she tells it through the stories of her clients who have come in and had their different problems. So it's broken into your social relationships, your emotional personal relationships, work experience, and why now is the time to act on those things rather than leave them for your 30s. Okay, interesting. I'm thinking about how that relates with your other two favorites. I'm really looking to read more books with 20-something protagonists. And I feel these books, they are all about sort of establishing a life you want in very different ways. I see the common thread running through these three books. I love that request and I'm really excited to dig into it. Okay, Clara, I've been waiting for this. Tell me about the book you hate. I always struggled with this question. I wasn't sure what I was going to choose until I read Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld and I just hated it. (laughs) Let's start by talking about your feelings about Pride and Prejudice because it is a modern retelling of sorts. Yes, so it's supposed to be a modern retelling, but (laughs) I don't think it gets there at all. So Pride and Prejudice is obviously a jewel in English literature. It's my granddad's favorite book. My mum read it to us when we were young. We're very emotionally attached to it. And I've definitely realized that I'm purist, which is, as Gretchen Rubin would say, a good know yourself better question. Pride and Prejudice is so much more than the story it tells. It's about society and how people interact and how we react to people. And this just took the story and added extremes and ridiculous subplots. 
I just thought, talk about from the sublime to the ridiculous. Have you read any other novels that are part of the Jane Austen project? I actually did read Emma by Alexander McCall Smith, who I love generally, which I (laughs) I did enjoy. Okay. I did enjoy it. But as someone said to me recently when we were discussing this, that was just Emma in a modern setting, Mm -hmm. whereas Eligible, they tried to do something different and make it a new modern story. Whereas in Emma, they just switched out the time century. I didn't love the new Emma either, but I do really love Alexander McCall Smith. And the reason I asked is I was just picturing him talking about how messing with the classics is fraught with danger because there's so many ways to go wrong. He happened to be in my town and he spoke about it right after this book came out. He wore a kilt and he was talking about Jane Austen. So that was all three, three amazing things all at once. When I went up to Edinburgh, I definitely had to pick up an Alexander McCall Smith book. Of course. But he did say that one messes with the classics at one's peril. And he was always conscious of that when he was writing. You're never going to satisfy everyone. So as I mentioned earlier, my friend Anna recommended me both My Berlin Kitchen and Eligible. (laughs) Loves Eligible, thinks Uh it's great fun, just, you know, laughed her way through it. And I just read it in horror. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Did you enjoy trashing it to her? I did. And I enjoyed hating it. (laughs) Well, that is something. Indeed. Clara, what are you reading right now? With my book club, we just read YA novels last month. Uh So I've just finished Dumpling by Julie Murphy and Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Abatelli. Um, I also just finished How to Be a Heroine or What I've Learned from Reading Too Much by Samantha Ellis, which was great fun. She goes through um, all the female protagonist classics and breaks down why they're either great examples of how to live your life or not so great. Yes, I have checked that book out of the library before and thought it looked right at my alley, but I haven't actually read it. I do recommend it. I It was one of those books that I then ended up in the days following, literally inputting it into every conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a good sign that it's a good one. What did you think about the YA books? I love YA books. I really like how the pace moves and both of those I really loved in sort of breaking down the the norm. They sort of both break the stereotype of YA books, high school books. What's next on your reading list? Just starting Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Uh-huh. And then up next is Sing Unburied Sing. Mm-hmm. But I actually just picked up the new Tom Hanks book, Uncommon Type, from the library today. Mm-hmm. And I'm intrigued about that one. So that might be next instead. Clara, we've already hinted at this some. Um, what do you want to be different in your reading life? The main thing I want to be different in my reading life is that I'd really love to read more books with 20-something protagonists. Although I love YA novels and I love memoirs, I really find books that I can relate to and that sort of reflect my life. A lot of books about midlife crises, which I cannot relate to at this stage. And then there are the classic coming-of-age stories like Catch in the Rye, But I just think they're in such a different generation than now that those aren't books that I see my life reflected in. 
Are you looking for something that's more like Sing Unburied Sing as opposed to uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda? Definitely not more like Sing Unburied Sing. <laughs> I actually like less serious books on the whole, which is the fine line. They need to be just right, which is terrible to say. You know, occasionally I enjoy chick lit, for want of a better word. I can enjoy, but they don't interest me so much. But then serious books, I find harder to tear through because I do find them really emotional. When you say that you haven't necessarily enjoyed chick lit or that that's not what you're looking for, what authors are you thinking of? Sophie Kinsella often has books about young women sort of flailing mm-hmm. through life. And mm-hmm. they're good fun occasionally, but they're not the books that I really love, even though this is entirely different generation. Anne of Green Gables is another favorite of mine where uh-huh. it's really well written, but it's sort of light in tone. Well written, but light in tone and not with like a romance plot. Preferably not. I think that there are enough of those and I do love a good romance story. I mean, my Berlin kitchen is so romantic. And yet I don't want that to be the main storyline. It's okay if it has romance in it because lots of good stories do, but I don't want it to be necessarily a romantic storyline. That is tough. The genre populated by Emily Giffen and Sophie Kinsella does have like the serious love story. I'm not interested in those books at all. Yeah. The tone is right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not quite. Those are a little bit fluffy. So I think that things like Rainbow Rowell books. She's one of my favorites. Uh Sort of a man called Uva. Uh-huh. Crazy Rich Asians, One True Loves by Taylor Jenkins Reid, A Gentleman in Moscow. Wait, One True Loves counts? It does. I really enjoyed that Excellent. one. Excellent. That is very helpful. So it is quite specific. I do recognize that. <laughs> I basically love half the books I read. I do. I am easily satisfied in that term. And I just find that this particular request, the 20-something protagonist, is Uh something that I have not found a lot of, even though I have looked a lot. Can you tell me a few more books that you didn't enjoy? They don't have to be terrible, but just ones that left you feeling unsatisfied. Well, this is great to look back. So far in 2018, I haven't read a single book like that. Um, But going back... That's amazing. Girl in Between, I Didn't Like by Anna Daniels. Uh The Two of Us by Andy Jones, not so keen on. Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, I Didn't Like. I loved Frederick Backman's A Man Called Uwe and Britt Marie was here, but I hated Beartown. Today Will Be Death Different by Maria Semple. I didn't enjoy it all, but I loved Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Here's the thing about novels that we all know, I think, although it took me a long time to be conscious of this. In novels, bad things happen to people, and then we watch them get through it. But I think what we're also looking for for you is people who are roughly in your stage of life, intentionally figuring out what they want their life to be like. So I'd like to know what your tolerance level is for terrible things happening to characters that you may come to care about. I like a happy ending. Okay. I do understand that things have to happen in novels to drive the plot forward. I think that 
what I'm looking for is not necessarily a simple everything goes okay life, but it's what you draw out of it and the themes that run through it that I'm hoping to find in novels that I can relate to in sort of terms of this, who am I, why am I living overseas, trying to live a big life. But in terms of my levels of hard things happening like Bear Town, I couldn't really get through that. Whereas something like We Were the Lucky Ones, I did enjoy regardless. And All My Puny Sorrows, I really grew to love those characters, even though that was a really hard book about suicide. Mm -hmm. So I think that if I care enough about a character, I'm happy to go through hard things with them. All right, Clara, this is tough, but I think I have a couple of books in mind for you. So let's dive in. Starting with the easy stuff that you specifically didn't ask for, have you read A Homemade Life by Molly Weisenberg? Uh, It has been on my radar as a foodie memoir, but I've never actually picked it up for some reason. I think it could be a good one for you. And it it is a memoir, but it's very story-driven. And I like it because it has so many of the elements you're looking for. So what happens is Molly is in her 20s. She's in Seattle. Her dad dies. The beginning of this book is so, 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 so sad um, because she's very close to her father and she's losing him. So after he dies, she's not quite sure what to do with her life. She was, um, I think she was in graduate school at the time of his death, but she just felt like she couldn't go back and resume her life as it was. So she went to Paris. This book has so many similarities with My Berlin Kitchen, but they do not at all feel like, oh, this is the same book in a different setting. It doesn't feel like that at all. They're very different stories. But she goes to Paris and she figures out how to remake her life that her father is no longer in and what she wants from it and what she needs from it and what kind of relationship she needs in it in order to create a life that makes her happy, but also feels like it has meaning to her. So there's travel and cooking and brainstorming and career exploration. I think it checks a lot of your boxes and it's a lot of fun to read once you get through the really, really sad part. If I can put on my ENFJ hat, it sounds perfect for you. Please pick this up immediately. Perfect. Okay. It's going straight on the library reservation list. Okay. Now the harder stuff. Have you heard of the new Meg Wolitzer book, The Female Persuasion? That's getting tons of press in the U.S. right now. It just came out late April. I've seen it on Instagram, but not in real life yet. Well, it's got a really snazzy, eye-catching cover. Love a good cover. Very important. Now, let me start by saying I'm not sure that this is perfect for you. But also, this might be perfect for you. So, this is a big, fat book really distinctive cover. It's about 450 pages. So it's substantial. It's more than an inch thick. But I like this book because it's about primarily a woman. Her name is Greer. In a lot of ways, Greer sounds like you, a very hard worker, very disciplined, very organized. She was described as a rocket ship, like someone who was destined (laughs) for success, who knew what she wanted and was going to go get it. And she gets into some Ivy League school, but that doesn't end up happening for reasons that come out in the book that are really funny and also really, really sad. She goes to college and she has this interaction when she's there with this uh, well-known 
revered fictional feminist. And so that association impacts what she wants to do with her life. So through the book, we see her graduate college, meet this woman who becomes a mentor, who becomes so important to her, make a plan for her life, pursue it with varying degrees of success, make and change friends. Uh, She betrays a friend along the way. She has uh, romantic relationships that go sometimes very, very badly and sometimes better. She's a woman figuring it out. The reason I'm not so sure about this for you is because it's messy. It's okay. I can do messy. Prefer less messy, but I can do messy. (laughs) The rest of it sounds fantastic. It sounds perfect in a lot of ways. She is figuring it out in a very proactive 20-something way. Like Meg Jay would say, like, yes, she is trying. So she's not just blowing it off until her 30th birthday. I will say for readers listening, if you're thinking, oh, that sounds like it might be for me, that it's not an easy book and there are triggers. It's not terribly graphic, as I recall, but I don't know that this would have been a book I was comfortable reading if it were to have come out when I was 18. Also, I'm really not a prude, I don't think. I'm a bit of a prude. She uses a word a couple of times that makes me really uncomfortable, but I understand why she does it. And that Mm -hmm. does help me a lot, like understanding why authors made the choices they did. I don't want to tell you too much about where it ends, but it doesn't end in disaster. I will say that. For a change of pace, I'm wondering about Someday, Someday, Maybe by Lauren Graham. Is this a book you're familiar with? I recognize the title, but I have never read. Okay. So Lauren Graham is best known from The Gilmore Girls. And this is her first novel. And I keep thinking maybe she'll write another one, but she keeps cranking out memoirs. Yes, I've read her memoir, which I enjoyed as a Gilmore Girl fan, but not as a book. And I have not read the memoir, so I can't speak to that. I just picked up her brand new one. Um, It's called In Conclusion, Don't Worry About It. And I think it's a graduation address, which would explain why it's so small. But I haven't read that either. I've only read her fiction and seen her on The Gilmore Girls and Parenthood, which I loved. When she finished Gilmore Girls and I had total withdrawal. And then I watched all her videos on YouTube. But it wasn't until years later that I discovered parenthood, which would have been the obvious next step. So this book is about a woman named Franny, who was named after the Salinger character. She is a young actress and she's in her 20s. She's trying to make it in New York City. So when she graduated from college, she set herself a deadline that she would give herself three years to try to make it. And she really wanted to do important work. She just didn't want to do shampoo commercials to make her living. Mm. So, but she's not doing so great. She's paying her rent by waiting tables, but she is trying to figure it out which is why I like it for you. There is a love story in this book, but it's not the main focus. And there are significant friendships in this book, but again, they're not the main focus. This is mostly a funny, lighthearted story that can't help but be serious because it's about a woman trying to make her way in the world, doing the work that she feels like she was made to do. And it's by Lauren Graham. So it's, you know, it's witty. It's fun. And I love that you mentioned friendships because I think that's such a huge part of being a young person is your friendships. And that's often something that you don't see in books so much. This is very true. So other titles, I'm thinking that you might enjoy just to add some more, um, you know, fodder to your list since they're hard to find. I'm wondering about Maria de los Santos. She has this series of books about uh, women 
figuring things out. It begins with Love Walked In. The next book is Belong to Me. And they're just uh, in March, a long awaited book in this, you know, I don't know how long ago it came out that the author was writing another book with these same characters, Mm -hmm. but she circled back to them for the first time in years. And it's called I'll Be Your Blue Sky. But I would really describe Love Walked In as a romantic comedy. And yet there are so many elements that are more than that. And the fact that you you really enjoyed One True Loves makes me think that this series might also be good for you because One True Loves, um, I, you know, I guess there's a significant friendship in there too. Mm-hmm. Several actually. But I feel like uh, Love Walked In is a little less romance focused than that book, which makes me think that it might be a winner for you. So in the first book, there's a character who in my head looks like Audrey Hepburn, who falls in love with a Cary Grant lookalike. She forms this close relationship with a girl who I think is 10 years old, which is really, you know, touching and sweet and important to the plot. Uh, She has good friends in her own life. She's close with her mom. There's just this whole web of relationships that are developing and changing and that she's figuring out. And also when the story opens, she's working as a barista, I think, in a coffee shop. And she's not satisfied doing that because she feels like she's old enough to be doing more of what she intended to do when she set out in the world. And so all these events, these current events in her life set into motion when the Cary Grant lookalike walks through the door are, are set against the backdrop of this dissatisfaction and yearning for more that she's feeling and trying to figure out what to do about in her life. Well, funnily enough, I literally just picked that book up. Love what? Are you serious? From my library this morning. Yeah. No. Part of my next book pickup. And so <laughs> I think I'll have to dive straight into that one. Oh, that's so funny. And then this is new. It's coming out in June and it's called A Place for Us. It's by Fatima Mirza and she is 26. Author. Yes, the author is 26. Oh, great. And if you're trying to write compelling 20-something characters, surely that can't hurt. This is a story about family relationships over the course of... I'd say 30 years, maybe longer. So the story is focused on three siblings. There's two daughters, the oldest of whom sounds a lot like you. Her name is Hadia and her younger sister. And then the baby of the family is a boy. His name is Amar. He is loved by everyone. He has the personality where you just can't help loving him, even if he is behaving badly. So this family is Muslim they, they're from India. They live in California and it unfolds between 1990-ish to approximately the present day. But it opens with Hadia's wedding and her brother has come back and no one was sure if he would come back or as a reader, you're like, who is, who is this person? Where has he been? Why is this a big deal? So over the course of the novel, you find out why it's been a big deal and you go back and forth in time and you hear all about this family's web of relationships involving them and some of their family members. And the title, it's a place for us. And it comes from West Side Story, the musical. Yeah. I'm such a big musical fan. Okay. (laughs) Reading this book made me want to watch the musical immediately. I haven't done it yet because I just finished it over the weekend, but I intend to soon. So West Side Story is about, well, in part, it's about a forbidden love. And so is this book. I will just say that the author writes so powerfully about 
relationships, brothers and sisters, uh, mothers and children, fathers and children, the parents themselves, neighbors in the community, the people we choose to love. Arranged marriage is a big theme in this book as well. And it's one of the reasons that this relationship that causes so much angst for everyone involved was forbidden because it was not arranged and perhaps could never have been. This is a kind of a quiet story in that it does not move at the pace of YA books, but it does move along. And I just kept turning the pages because I needed to know what happened to these characters that I cared about so, so much. And then the end of the story, you find out what happened after the wedding. And I think the way she writes about love and regret is so, so spot on. I love it when authors can make relationships on the page seem real. And when I can say like, oh my gosh, yes, I see that. Or I hope I never see that in my own life, but I can imagine like, what can I learn from these characters so that I don't end up like this? Cause this is breaking my heart. I love it when an author can do that. I love that too. Definitely. Okay. That sounds great. I really like the sound of that. It's sad, Clara. It is sad. It made me laugh at places, but it is sad. I will definitely keep that in mind, but I would love to read that. Well, I would love to hear if you ditch it on page 40 or if it gets <laughs> bolded in your Evernote doc. I will definitely keep you updated <laughs> on that one when it comes out. All right. Clara, do we already know what you're going to read next? Well, I think I have to read Love Walked In because it is literally on my bedside table. But I am very intrigued by the female persuasion as well. So I guess it's whatever comes into the library holds next. Well, I love it when people let the library decide. I'm terrible at making my own decisions. (laughs) So whatever comes in next. You can just outsource that. They'll decide for you. Well, thank you so much for talking books with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been such a delight. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Clara today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Clara and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 131. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you'd like to help What Should I Read Next be the best it can be, there's a way to make your voice heard. Go to what should I read next podcast.com slash survey to answer questions about your reading life and your listening life. This is a survey we made just for you at What Should I Read Next headquarters. And we thank you so much for taking five minutes to fill it out. Readers, thanks so much for rating and reviewing What Should I Read Next in Apple Podcasts. We hit the 2000 review mark with your help, but your reviews always spread the book love and help book lovers find our show. Thanks in advance for leaving your review. I appreciate it so much. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, don't forget to tell us about the book you can't wait to read this summer using your actual voice at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash talk. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness 
and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!